on the podcast this month, Joe and I talk about this month's magazine, and Kate and I talk about the many, many acquisitions that have been happening in the L&D space over the last few weeks. Also, Miriam Nealon drops in to talk about her latest book, Evidence-Informed Learning Design. Hi everybody, I'm John Kennard, and this is March's TJ Podcast. As always, you know where we start. This is the March 2020 edition of the podcast and our news section. And of course, we say hello to my news anchor co-host, Kate Graham. How's it going? Hello. Very good to hear. The sun is shining in Wales for once. So it's it's very pleasant for a change from the rain. Yeah, same here in Bristol. We're not far apart. We we did some co-working the other day. We did. Uh, kind of. Slash meeting. That was, that was nice. Slash lunch. Yep. It was very pleasant. Yeah, more of that, please. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's talk about some news. Where should we start? Should we start with the uh, the coronavirus stuff or the acquisition stuff? <laughs> let's just get the coronavirus out of the way, shall we? Just It's the elephant in the room, probably. Okay, it's one of these things where you, you can't move for uh, conversation tips and tricks, um, advice and fake news and real news. I got a lift to football last night with a friend and it was literally two minutes into the journey before we were talking about the coronavirus. It's literally all that people uh, are concerned with and rightly so in some regards. What do you think? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's obviously a game changer, isn't it? And it's unfolding day by day. And I mean, my um, WhatsApp group with my, you know, my best girlfriends, um, you know, we're often talking about all sorts of nonsense. And it's actually just been dominated by by the news and, and what's happening sort of hour by hour. So it, it, it literally is sort of seeping everywhere. Um, I mean, the interesting thing, I suppose, from uh an economic perspective is obviously that impact they've obviously reduced interest rates as we as we record this today um but i spoke to a recruiter yesterday and um on behalf of somebody else obviously and they said that they're seeing loads of interest um from companies scrambling to sort out you know virtual training online learning etc another friend of mine works for a big telecoms company they're telling people to stay at home and you know one of their senior directors said oh it's a really good time for people to catch up on their online learning so uh, it's interesting to see the you know the uh, uh, upside if that is uh, if I can even vaguely use that word but the the flip side of the coin I suppose is the better phrase yes I I think we we can't dismiss the medical ramifications of it certainly for oh. a certain age with pre-existing conditions uh i think the the more as you say that the more pressing concern is the economic impact of of taking precautions we're seeing a lot of events being cancelled mm. is a uh festival promoter and he's wondering whether he's going to have to cancel his events uh we've just partnered with unleash uh the HR and talent event, which is happening at the end of this month. And currently things are going ahead. Uh, I know that I was down to go to Skillsoft's Perspectives event, and that's been moved completely online. So there is tangible disruption happening. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, somebody did say to me, you know, can the can the conference world survive? Uh, you know, another friend of mine um, runs events for a living. They've just moved all theirs back to the end of the year. So um and somebody yesterday 
you know, they said, will it change the face of events forever? And I said, I really think that people still like to get together. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that this, that will change, you know, that will change in the short term. But, you know, there's that thing that goes around the internet with, you know, the guy holding up the signs and it says that meeting could have been an email. I don't know if you've seen that, but lots of people, I've seen lots of comments on social media saying, well, I guess now we will find out if that meeting really could have been an email. Mm. So it might it might have some impact on working behaviours, um, I suppose. But, uh, uh, you know, the, I, I think the... Um, the scary thing is for people that, you know, can't not go to work. It's very easy for me to work remotely because that's what I do all the time. So it literally makes no difference to me uh, day to day. Um, but I think the the knock on effect on people who may be on zero hours contracts and things like that, that is the, uh, you know, the 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 darker impact after sort of after the illness aspect of it all. So you know, we just watch it unfold, I suppose. There's nothing we can do. Yeah, I'm like you. I'm also a remote worker. And so it is providing, yeah, it's, it does make a great deal of difference to me personally. Uh, we are going to be publishing some uh, remote working tips or g- gathering up some of our best remote working content to really capitalise on this uh, disaster. Um, no, it is going to make a lot of changes to some businesses' working practices um but like you said maybe it will maybe people will see that we don't have to uh have that meeting face to face although i do totally agree on the other side of that that people still do want to meet meet up in person and hopefully that will still be possible um for various different events yeah totally and it's things like i joined a call this morning an external call and i always have my camera on now because i've been working from home for so long and it, it, it david perring my colleague said to me um a long time ago you know if you work remotely and you don't turn your camera on for calls you're kind of missing the point and i'm on calls a lot of the time and i never don't feel like i've been a day where i haven't seen people um because of that and it just changes the dynamic of a call and it's really nice actually if you're talking to clients to say hello and see who you're talking to um but I had to get past the vanity aspect um you know because working from home everyone jokes about being like a hobo um but it kind of doesn't matter it doesn't you know doesn't really matter and it's actually it's much nicer to feel like you've seen people even if that is through a screen so that if you're talking about remote working tips I think that would probably be my number one okay now we've covered that uh, let's talk about the very many acquisitions that have been happening in the last month or so. Kate, which one should we start with? Well, you could go chronological, um, if if you like. So uh, um, just under a month ago, unbelievably, um, Ultimate Software acquired uh, Kronos, which are much more in the HR side of things. And, and maybe some of the TJ listeners aren't so quite so familiar with um with their work they're more us centric as as companies but make no mistake that is a huge play um in the world of hr tech um then we get into cornerstone acquiring saba which is you know obviously huge in terms of the learning system side and something that your uh listeners tj listeners will be much more uh familiar with and I mean, did you run that story? Have you had much kind of feedback or heard much noise about that one? We haven't actually. We haven't done anything 
on it. Um, I posted, I boosted a couple of other people's stories about it, but um, no, we haven't covered it directly. But I, uh, I saw Fosway's comment. Do you want to expand on your perspective on it at all? Yeah. So uh, the analyst took coined it uh, the poster child for kind of cloud software is is Cornerstone and the warhorse of the industry is Saba. Um, and you know this deal is worth one point four pretty much 1.4 billion dollars so i mean it's a it's a huge play um but yeah we see it as uh you know a kind of a market share play i suppose um there are a lot of synergies but equally where we're seeing pressure in the market is uh, learning systems being squeezed from above by the likes of the bigger HR or the broader HR platforms and this move doesn't do anything to address those pressures that the cornerstone might have been feeling so it's it's a really interesting one I mean it's still all got to go through um, but yeah it's a I mean but it's a big story and if you look at the Fosway 9 grid obviously that's two strategic leaders joining together so you know there is an impact there on choice but there's also potentially huge benefits in terms of innovation and R&D for, for those customers. To, uh, to take Tech Target's perspective on it, in their stand first, it says, Cornerstone is building learning management's Netflix. Cornerstone's acquisition of cyber software for $1.4 billion takes out a learning management competitor and gives it a boost of engineering talent to speed innovation. Apparently. that's that's the official line and that's what the the guys there are uh, are excited about um and i suppose in some ways what it does do is it nullifies a, the potential threat of another potentially a hr provider buying saba um because they were up for sale so um and they've uh, really turned to under phil saunders in the last few years they've really um turned everything around and so their investors had put them up for sale a few months ago so i suppose it does kind of take out a threat as well from cornerstone's perspective um but yeah the guys there are talking a lot to us about um their excitement around the potential for innovation integration etc so as always with these things it's not like you know it's not a quick that's not a quick process um so it will be interesting to see uh, what happens there time will tell time will tell indeed okay on to the next one where should we go now um so i mean i think the natural follow-on from that is actually around access group and core hr because that is an example where access group have been really hot on the acquisition trail in the last um few years so um let me see i've got a list of people that they've bought somewhere um <laughs> uh they've bought um uh unicorn uh who many to do uh, listeners will know safety media and a company called microlearn and um they also have been acquiring on the hr and talent side as well so it's a company called people hr and now they've bought core hr so this is something that is interesting from a a more i suppose holistic approach um and 
it because actually it's starting to cover that whole gamut of everything through from digital learning right through to talent and that core HR piece. So they are trying to build something from the look of it that is a much more holistic solution. Um, and they've also got um, a strong offering that kind of mid-market and SMB level as well. So it isn't just the, the huge enterprises that this is creating an offering for. And obviously in the UK market particularly, that's very interesting because there are a lot of organisations that fit into that mid-market and SMB range of people so you know from our from our perspective from Fosway's perspective you know we think that that's a really positive really interesting play yes it's um it's it's another it's another big one isn't it uh I'm uh so that was a rather Donald Trump kind of response to that <laughs> um short on the details <laughs> um but it, I mean it's, a, it's an acquisition more in the HR space, which is kind of key to um, Fosway's analysis, not so much to ours, but nevertheless, it is in the similar trend of not contraction. I mean, I guess that's uh, that's not quite the way to look at it, um, but certainly. Uh, I think the interesting thing is, though, you know, it might not be something that feels like it's in L&D's home turf, but this is all going to start having an impact because that whole kind of best of breed, what we would say best of breed versus single suite. So whether or not somebody is wanting to buy, you know, my phrase for it is always one ring to rule them all. So one system that does everything that powers learning, recruitment, payroll, HR, you know, kind of core HR processes versus, you know, building an ecosystem of specialist providers that hopefully all integrate in together um so it might not feel like that hr play is something that is affecting lnd but actually it will start to make an impact because the uh you know it people stereotypically like the one ring to rule them all approach because it's in inverted commas easier and there's less you know there's no integration to worry about but again stereotypically what you find with uh, these big suites is that some of the specialisms suffer because they don't have the depth of functionality so L&D as a specialism you know the some of the modules within these suites don't always and I'm not tarnishing any you know any particular ones with this brush but they don't always have the depth of functionality that some of the the learning specialist providers will have so it might feel like it's you know, kind of 10 steps away from impact in L&D. But the reality is that that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess when you look in business and you, you sort of try to work out which uh, companies have a separate L&D department to an HR department or whether uh, L&D is part of the bigger HR department is as it is in a lot of places, we're kind of seeing that playing out as the two come together by these acquisitions, I mean, one is reflecting the other and one is completely related to the other, I guess. So, so yeah, I mean, maybe they are um, merging in more ways than one. The next one is, this is on a slightly smaller scale, but nevertheless, it is an acquisition in the space. Calidus acquires Engage in Learning. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, this one and then the next one we're talking about are probably more home turf uh, in inverted commas, but yeah, I mean, it, it makes uh, a lot of sense from, from the Calidus point of view to further broaden out um, its content 
offering and um it, you know engaging learning is you know been running for a long time they've got a big library of stuff um they also run across uh, they use totra um so yeah you know that's a very kind of you don't have to dig too far beneath the surface to understand the motivation behind that acquisition there's a there's an obvious ad there for for Calidus customers yeah um what uh, how many more have we got i've got one more well, i've got one more <laughs> it's surely the same one uh, learning technologies group ltg yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so this this news just came to us yesterday, um, and it's about Learning Technologies um, acquisition of Blackboard's Open LMS for thirty one point seven million dollars. So it's not quite one point four billion, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's not an insubstantial investment. Yeah, Learning Technologies have been uh, the group that is have been on a quite an acquisition hunt over the last few years with Leo, etc. What are Blackboard going to add to that portfolio, do you think? Well, Blackboard's always traditionally been more ed tech um, focused. So I think it's quite um, an interesting and obviously more so us um oriented as well so i think there's a, a, a you know an interesting um play here it it might not have been what i personally would have um expected uh if that if that makes sense um i don't know that i would have expected them to go to for more of an ed tech focus but they will continue to grow by acquisition uh jonathan Satchel, their ceo is very um very bold and very very positive about um his intentions there so it it goes into a stable of a growing stable of of brands including you know kind of watershed people fluent um so it's an interesting uh direction uh, and not one that I personally would have expected. Although my learned colleagues might, uh, uh, in the analyst team, might say otherwise, they might might have had a, a greater insight there. Yeah, Blackboard have been heavily involved with um, OEB for years, and uh, I've met several of the uh, of the Blackboard lot. And uh, yeah, it, that is definitely one in the ed tech space. So I'm wondering if we're going to see a raft more of these similar acquisitions as as uh, we see the journey of lifelong learning or we see the ed tech space kind of further intertwined with corporate learning perhaps Mm. yeah i mean i i suppose ltg does have a history with the um open source side of side of things um so uh, and the kind of the learning locker type stuff that and the lrs type stuff that they've got with um watershed and the experience api things so yeah i think it's interesting to take on something that kind of is traditionally been positioned more against like moodle um but then there's a lot of organizations out there using totra for example so i think it will be a very interesting to see where they where they take this one well one thing i've learned from this new section kate is it's pronounced totra and not totara oh yeah there you go it's well it's like a lot of things isn't it i suppose i mean we get it all the time with Foz, Fosway, people say all the time. Like, no, it's Fosway. But Kineo is is another one that when I worked with them, a lot of people pronounce that differently. But yeah, I what did I say? Totara. Totara, yeah, like yeah, the Ghibli film. My yeah, I, I I did have a lesson from somebody uh, Italian on how to say Docebo the <laughs> recently. So um, yeah, it's all in the pronunciation. 
yeah, all in the details. Okay, uh, that was the news section. Kate, thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Here we are. This month, we are talking about transformation and TJ Magazine's... No, this is rubbish. 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 In... <laughs> Fallen at the first hurdle there. Okay. Okay, let's talk about the magazine. And once again, welcome to the stage of Lightbulb Moment. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How the devil are you? I'm okay. We have a lot to talk about. We much do. Your business. And maybe that's a good place to start because um, for, for reasons which will be become apparent and no one's talking about this in the press anywhere. Um, your business has seen a bit of an uptick in recent days, hasn't it? It certainly has. There's this little known virus going around called coronavirus. Nobody's got it. Nobody's mentioning it, as you say. Um, but suddenly lots of people are working from home or not going to school or university. And magically, everyone is now interested in live online learning, remote working, webinars, and so on. So I've seen... This this seems like a uh, a fairly obvious knock on effect, but so far to me on the commentary on social media was was very theoretical. Oh, we might see this happening, but you've this is actually yeah. testing it actually happening in your business. Yeah, absolutely. We've had something like a forty percent increase in our website traffic. We've had uh, people inquiring and and just basically going, ah, we need to get online. Please help us quick now, right now. Um, and that's not quite literally the emails, but that's the essence behind the emails that we're getting and the phone calls we're having. And uh, can you can you keep up with demand? Everything okay? Are you are you a bit stretched now? Um, we are doing okay at the moment, but there's lots of people out there that do similar work to me. Um, so you know, there's always been enough work to go around, is my opinion, and I think even more so now that there will be. Uh, and it's just a case of I've seen people on Twitter saying, "Let's go to the people that really do know how to do this," and and I've been going back through a lot of my blogs and podcasts and all all the articles I've written and resources that I've got. And just queuing up tweets for them to say, right, if you need to do this, here's a blog. If you need to do this, here's a resource. And just realizing how much stuff I've put out there. Um, and that's the stuff that I'm hoping is helpful for people because it's just like we all need to upskill in a different way, I think. Uh, and this, I think, plays quite well into our um, topic of the month, which is transformation. Very much so. Yeah, and Debbie says in her leader, uh, transformation is all around us today. And if mankind survives the massive impact that climate change is likely to make on, on us in this century, it will continue as it always has, striving for improvement. This was obviously um, a paper before the true effects of um, coronavirus have taken hold. Um, but it all is part of the same thing, which is dealing with change and uh, dealing with the development of, uh, of work in different ways, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And Don Taylor in his column kind of continues that theme by talking about getting out of the training ghetto. And one of the things he talks about, obviously, is data and analytics, but also curation about gathering materials. And I think if you look at something like we're talking about where people are suddenly working from home, virtual working in remote teams, managing people um, remotely, webinars, virtual classrooms, whatever those other changes might be, and just the agility we need in business this is the ideal time for L&D to be going out and going, right, what's already out there? Because quite frankly, we do not have time to make something new. There's a quote from uh, later on in that piece, actually, 
um, that I wanted to highlight, and it is it goes in sync with what uh, one of the initiatives at Learning Technologies 2020 earlier in the year. Uh, where Don says, I believe this moment in L&D is too precious to waste, that we now have the opportunity to haul ourselves out of the training ghetto and play a significant part in both organisational capability and in people's lives. I have been asking myself what I can do to help this happen, and I think my role is pretty clear. For the next 12 months, I'll be searching out those already succeeding in this field and helping them share their stories. Um, so the 30 Under 30 initiative mm. uh, was put in place at uh, Learning Technologies this year. It seems like Don's becoming um, a champion of the new generation a little bit. What do you think? Well, I think if you're, you know, such a part of the older generation, you have to. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. What a mean joke. <laughs> I think Don's going to have a word with me when he sees me next. Now, I, I think absolutely. And, I, and I, I actually genuinely mean as you get older and as I'm getting older myself, you start to realise how important it is to give back and to support other people, whether that's younger or females, people of colour, you know, diversity in whatever way you see that. So I think that's a key part of it from a very personal point of view that drives people to do that kind of thing. But also um, later on in the magazine, there talks a, a piece about the generations that we've got and the different age groups that we've got in the workplace and how we celebrate and support those uh, different generations is going to be really important. So I think it's a great initiative. I wouldn't know about getting older, Joe. I'm in my 20s, as you eh? <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes. And I'm only in my 30s. <clears throat> <clears throat> so tell us about uh, Cook Looks. What are you looking Oh, well, I think actually what I look at this month in a magazine fits quite nicely with the theme that we've been talking about in terms of the change of how we communicate in business. So I talk about how we connect through conversation when it's through something like Twitter or WebEx or a webcam and just how that's changing and how we can try and get over that perceived technology barrier and connect in different ways. Yeah, I think we, we talk about this uh quite a lot that we connect me and you connect in a number of different ways and I think mm. it's important to find which one works for you and also not rely or, or not put too much stock in the fact that it's one technology over another and that it's yeah. about uh, empowering rather than relying on yeah and I think it's as you say it's really individual so you and I were a similar age 20s um we've got some <laughs> some similar but different sense of humor and, and views on the world it's quite uh, similar enough to be congruent but different enough to be interesting is how I see it and and so quite often like our whatsapp messages are quite short or sarcastic or they just we we gif each other like animated pictures just to have a conversation and that works really well but then with Debbie um who who is a different generation and has a different experience and outlook on life it's a very different conversation that I have with her on WhatsApp and I think that's the joy is connecting with individuals in specific ways just like we always have but just using new technology to do that mm. indeed indeed and um actually is the next piece in the magazine and it's about the awards and she talks mm. about the awards which are now open for 2020 uh they we're recording this today on the 11th of march and awards opened monday just gone they close on the 12th of june it's free to enter it's very straightforward if you need any help then do get in touch uh the categories for this year we've taken a couple out added a couple back in to uh reflect these changing times uh but it's all very exciting 
Yeah, very much so. And uh, it's always a really amazing evening of celebration, as we always say, you know, bronze, silver, gold, just to be shortlisted, just to enter are always really good things to go and celebrate and to be able to um, get your message together and be able to share that. And I think that's really positive. Yes. Next up in the magazine is Rob Stewart, who was crowned TJ's L&D Professional of the Year for 2019. Uh, he's a learning and development advisor in the digital team at the Scottish Ser- Social Services uh, Council, and he's our spotlight interview. Uh, a great accolade for him and a really interesting interview. I'd like to pull out about um, the movies he talks about in his... Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing to do with the content of learning and development, but I like that he talks about Batteries Not Included as uh, one of his... Oh, I love that film. So on to one of the features of the magazine called Catalysts of Change. And there's a lovely caterpillar, chrysalis, butterfly picture to go with this. And it's about demographics and technological change. Yeah. um, The pull quote on the first page, by 2035, over 1.1 billion people uh, will be over the age of 65, is something that I think should be taken quite seriously in terms of what that's uh, going to do to our workforce and demographics within it. Now, we're not, there's elements of this piece, which I think are really important. They also talk about, up front, they do mention the M-word millennials. Um, so I was planning on glossing over that part of it. Um, but there's a lot of interesting things to say in this article about how we can use technology and how uh, the workforce is going to change and how we can deal with this. So I'd like to pull out a bit from the sidebar, unless you want to talk about another element, Joe. Yeah, I just wanted to pull out one little piece here where they say a study by McDonald's found that multi-generational teams had higher performance and job satisfaction than less diverse teams. And I think that's a really interesting point. So there's a little sidebar here of what will we do differently? And there's uh, four sections, new tech, aging workforce, millennials and social media. And each one's got various points to think about how we will do things different, especially from a cultural point of view. Under new technology, there's one point about leadership and management adopting open supportive styles. And that's something that makes such a difference with any kind of change process, let alone a big generational one like this. John, what do you want to pull out from that? I actually wanted to talk about the next section uh, of the ageing workforce uh, to to talk, you know, to to build on the quote from the first page. And it's about uh, having HR policies that attract, retain and develop older workers. I think that's really important because ageism is often something that is overlooked, I think, or not really hard. Mm. Um, Multi-generational teams being the norm, I think that's really important and a great thing for business, of course. Flexible working and flexible retirement, that's interesting. And to pull it to, to, to tie it into the coronavirus thing, sorry, we're mentioning it again, but we're seeing the, the health service and various other uh, industries re-employing people who've maybe just retired or are working part-time and This is obviously in response to a crisis, in quote marks, but we might come to that later. But nevertheless, I think it bodes well for businesses actually operating on that policy and and realising that it can work. Uh, And the last thing is mentoring, pairing younger with older, more experienced workers. And that can work both ways. Reverse mentoring, I think, is as important as normal mentoring. Absolutely. Love all that. Got cold, but a normal one, a normal one. <laughs> just as well, <laughs> just as well, we are virtual, John. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> uh, the last one 
they talk about social media. I mean, social media now has been around for 10, 15 years odd, but uh, it's nevertheless something that isn't in all businesses made that much use of. I think I've worked mm. where it's been very much a sideline. I've worked in places where it's been extremely central um, to the way that uh, people communicate across the business. So it still warrants highlighting, I think. Uh, real-time two-way communications between staff and management. Employees are encouraged to use tools at work. I think that is absolutely crucial, and it is still not something that is uh, that widespread, I don't think. Okay, moving on. The next piece uh, by Dominic Gill, Accelerate for Digital Transformation. Uh, it's a great piece. It talks about strategy and the problems. Uh, he's MD of a uh, company called Intercore, by the way. And the quote I want to pull out from this piece is, uh, about it's about change and it's about how to enact change effectively um, so Dominic says months of planning for digital changes will be ineffective as the landscape is likely to have moved again by the time a strategy has been in, has been implemented rendering previously planned strategy obsolete instead developments need to continually evolve by smaller regular adaptations to your strategy Think of it in terms of utilising speedboat sprints to ensure you continually adapt to changing circumstances rather than attempting to turn a huge tanker in one go. Oh, what a brilliant way to explain that. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's far too often people put this huge strategy together with various documents and lead-ups and months and months and months of planning when really, I think, and something that you've said to me repeatedly actually is... is uh, is to kind of just get on with it, proceed until apprehended, perhaps. <laughs> Quoting, yeah, Doug, yes, Doug. And um, I, I think that's really interesting because so even in a small business that I run with two people, we've been looking at doing various projects and different things. And, and quite literally between November and this week, we have flip flopped back and forth on various decisions, all for really good business reasons. And we've gone from, yep, OK, let's do this big project and spend 10 grand through to we're not doing it. We're cutting it up. We're doing a little doing it piecemeal we do this 250 quid there through to oh my goodness coronavirus work's gone crazy put everything on pause and let's focus on other stuff and it's really interesting how you I could react to that and go oh we've made all these decisions we haven't done it we're not doing this project but actually what I'm seeing that is it's much more about agility and flexing to the needs of your clients. Moving on to Donald Taylor and his 2020 sentiment survey the one question have you read the survey i have and i filled it in do every year let's talk about the results because if we look at the top five and we'll come to why the top five is important in a second uh learning analytics is number one up from number three last year uh personalization is down to number two from one last year but basically the top five top six are fairly static and have just moved around from the top 16, the only one that's brand new is coaching mentoring. I find that quite interesting. Why? Well, I would have assumed that it would have been something that was somewhere on people's radar for a while. But um, lots of management courses are kind of incorporating coaching, um, as far as I can tell from uh, people I've been speaking to. But uh, yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. 
It is a good thing. I, I wonder, you know, there, there's so much interpretation that we can do around this global sentiment survey of, uh, you know, what's going to be hot in, in L&D in 2020. And Don is the first person to remind us that he says in his article, it's crucial to remember what we're asking and of whom. Survey respondents are self-selecting and likely to be more tech savvy than the general population of L&D. And, and I think to that point, Maybe that's why some of the stuff in here is much more tech oriented. Like you say, um, the the top few are learning analytics, there's artificial intelligence, micro learning and other things in there. But also I wonder how much of this is what becomes business as usual for most of the time and then just has its uh, revolution of something that's going to be more important for a particular reason in that in that coming year. Yeah, I know what you mean. <clears throat> we, there is an element of um, preaching to the converted a little bit. Um, and I think this is also why Don perhaps is spending so much time this year bringing other people's voices into L&D and, and, and looking for new people to sort of champion the industry a little bit. Um, I, I'd also mm-hmm. like to highlight a blog post from Donald Clark where he looked at the top five, or he looked at the whole list from from Don Taylor and said, well, actually, the more interesting thing is that the top five kind of combine for a new learning experience. So rather than look at these um, top five in isolation and say, well, uh, learning analytics is number one, that's interesting, adaptive learning, et cetera, et cetera, um, they all combine to form the new experience of L&D in 2020 and beyond. Mm. Interesting. So I've got one more piece, or rather it's one more quote uh, that I'd like to pull out of the magazine, uh, but it's for a slightly different reason than uh, you might think, Joe. Ooh. So practitioner's viewpoint, Paul Carter is a well-being expert. He's an independent HR writer. Uh, in his final paragraph, he talks about Superman, and I want to know your opinions. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I don't know much about Superman, so... Well, I'm not sure how much I'll be able to comment. How do you feel about... (laughs) She said somewhat sarcastically. How do you feel about Superman being referenced here? He says, well-being confident leaders do not have to be superheroes or pretend they are Joe Public. When Superman entered a crystal chamber to undergo the depowering process to become a mere mortal, the transformation destroyed the chamber. He realised this was not his destiny and rebuilds the crystal chamber to regain his powers and be his true self. In the modern world... The crystal chamber accommodates all genders and demographics, helping them to shine and reflect on their shared commitment to make the world of work a better place. Well, that's just beautiful. I'm always striving to try and get Superman into my work uh, without seeming like the world's worst geek. And this has just been done beautifully. And, um, oh gosh, I, I just don't know what to say. I think he makes a really good point about being yourself and and Superman with his alter ego, Clark Kent, is the ultimate manifestation in in popular culture of discussing about your different faces and your different personalities and how you show those to people and where your strengths are. I've got, because I am a massive Superman nerd, um, I've got a really lovely sign and uh, hanging up and it says, you don't have to be a superhero to find the right girl. The right girl will bring out the superhero in you. And I think that nice. echoes what's being said here. Yeah, it's it's about just being yourself and the right people will be attracted to you. And that could be 
in as a romantic partner, which is obviously what that's related to. But you can see that, I think, just as friendship, as a leader, as a business professional. That's how I see that. What a lovely way to round things off. Oh. So that was the magazine for this month. And just to end this section, Joe, you wanted to talk about uh, a piece you saw online. I'd like to know your opinions here because I'm so close to all the online content. It's sometimes difficult to uh, view this objectively. So what did you pull out? Well, there's obviously always loads of great content on the website. I have to say that it's it's almost literally in my contract. Uh, oh, no, I don't have a contract anymore. That's right. Uh, so, but no, the piece I do want to pull out, it's uh, about creating a truthful workplace. And this is written by Sarah Harvey from Savvy, uh, Savvy Conversations, uh, who also wrote the book Savvy Conversations, a practical framework for effective workplace relationships, and is in another podcast you can find on our podcast page but it was really interesting about this truthful workplace and she says here uh, to help you decide how truthful your organization culture is take a moment to consider these questions how many meetings do you sit in where you know the real issue is not being discussed how many issues are you personally and collectively avoiding talking about and what are you or others pretending not to know and what amazing questions they are, John, because we've all been in those situations, haven't we? I don't know what you mean. I know everything, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I know I've been in meetings with you where all of those apply. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, it is, a, it is a great piece. Um, and we're, there's going to be more coming from Sarah as well. Uh, those are really good questions, though, because how much do you think uh, culture would change if we were just a little bit more honest and truthful in meetings? Um yeah. across the board you know um there's a lot of I mean for, for for one reason or another meetings don't often happen like that but it would be great to keep those things in mind to be a little bit more true yeah. a bit more honest um yeah and, and Sarah balances it towards the end of the article she says it's worth remembering being truthful and creating a truthful workplace is important but there will be times where it's not appropriate. So ask, you know, is this crucial? Is it helpful? Is it kind? And I think that's a really important balance to have because you don't have to go in like a bull in a china shop and attack people for their truth. You can do that in a really sensitive way as well. Good stuff. Okay, well, that was the magazine and website section. Hi, TJ, it's Joe Cook here, and I'm with the lovely Miriam Nealon. Now, Miriam, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Miriam. I live in Dublin, Ireland, but I'm Dutch, um, which you can probably hear based on my accent. Um, I work for Accenture at the moment as a learning experience design lead. So what I do is basically lead the end-to-end learning design processes. So I'm involved like from the very start, uh, working with stakeholders to identify the problem, et cetera, et cetera. And then all the way to the actual rollout, delivery, whatever the format is. So that's what I do in a nutshell. Fantastic. And we're talking to you today because you have a book, Evidence Informed Learning Design. And I want to talk through that, which you've co-written with Paul Kirshner. Yes, that's correct. And and that kind of, um, I'm going to come into our question in just a moment, but before I do, I need to address your name and your pronunciation, because as you read it, it's written M-I-R-J-A-M. And I yes. know we don't call you Mersham, 
Yeah, no, you, I mean, in Dutch, it's Miriam. It's because the J in Dutch is like silent. So it's yeah. It's like, a, yeah. So um, uh. in English, I would say Miriam, as you did when you introduced me. But yeah, some people call me Merjan, okay. which is uh, because the way it's written. But um, it's not the way it should sound. I see. Okay. Well, Miriam, I will endeavour not to just read out your name like I normally do on a webinar uh, and completely ruin the pronunciation. Um, so, I mean, this book is about evidence-informed learning design and we definitely need to use evidence that's available to us. Um, and you say we need to do that to move beyond opinions and intuition. But why do so many people in our industry not do this? Um, well, I mean, it's all a bit speculative, but I think there are multiple reasons. One reason I think is that like early uh, 20th century, there wasn't really any research for us to use. So just for the record, when I say evidence, I mean scientific evidence. Um, as, as opposed to what type of evidence? Well, there's other types of evidence, right? Like where you do learner research, that's, that's a type of evidence to use or... Um, they, you know, when you when you gather like data from from performance systems or whatever, that's also evidence, uh, different level, different type of evidence. So I refer to scientific evidence when I say evidence. Um, so yeah, I think one reason is that there wasn't really any research, but then, uh, you know, the learning sciences was, um, you know, was around like starting in the what is it, 1970s or something. So now we do have like 50 years of, of research, um, but somehow the profession hasn't really started to use it. I think it's getting better, uh, but I think it's taken a long time. Um, so I don't know if it's because people are not used to it, are not aware of it, think that's because our profession is quite complex and very context dependent, that maybe they feel that the evidence is not strong enough. So, you know, maybe they feel it's not you know, not you useful as in you you don't even know if it's if it's uh, if it applies to your context kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Maybe people are lazy. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this brings us on to a really interesting point you make in the book about the difference between evidence based, which is what we hear a lot of in L and D at the moment in trying to kind of bring us forward and evidence-informed. And I mean, your whole book is entitled Evidence-Informed Learning Design. So what's the difference? Well, yeah, that's definitely on purpose because evidence-based is, um, you know, grounded in, in medical uh, science. And it really is about working with the highest level of um, objective evidence um, to you know to to use that and that the highest level of quality of research so randomized uh, control mm -hmm. trials etc cetera, etc cetera, and then use that to make informed decisions about patient treatments so it's the evidence the highest level of evidence in combination with clinical expertise in combination with patient values that make it you know evidence-based however in our context it's slightly different we still have evidence but so as i said before um it's very context dependent, right? So you need to be more careful how you interpret the data. It's often um, qualitative data, so it's not as strong usually as in the medical uh, world. 
So we just need to be a bit more careful and cautious around how we use the evidence and how we interpret it and where we can apply it and, you know, combine it with our own experience and our own context. I see. Yeah. And in, in the book, you say that evidence informed includes scientific evidence, learning experience, design expertise, which we'll come back to in a moment, and input from learners, stakeholders, systems and, and otherwise. So I really like that you're including basically all those forms of evidence that you highlighted earlier on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, so speaking about learning experience design, um, you put in the book, the experience design comes from Don Norman, who says the practice of designing products, processes, services, events and environments with a focus placed on the quality and enjoyment of the overall experience. So what is learning experience design in L&D and why is it important? Yeah, so experience is uh, Don Norman is experience design, right? Not learning experience mm -hmm. uh, design. Um, I don't know. If you ask 10 different people, you probably get 10 different answers, which is one of the, the challenges we have sometimes in our field. Uh, Paul and I have had a debate um, if we if we should use the term at all in a book, like because for us, instructional design or learning design is fine as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why I think learning experience design or, or talking about learning experiences is a good idea is because I think it indicates that it's more than formal training, right? Learning is way more than that. Like there's many different types of learning. Um, learning experience, uh, I think, indicates that you're looking at it from a learner perspective. So that means meaningful experiences for for them, meaning uh, meaningful experience that facilitate learning um i think it also comes from the idea that people say you can't design learning you can only design experiences mm -hmm. although then there's people who say you can't design experiences either because people experience in a certain way <laughs> well, you and can it's design not up to you the and... activities and the tasks can't you yeah and you hope you contribute to somebody's experience right it's like well, otherwise yeah, we I might as well just pack I, up now quite frankly <laughs> yeah exactly so i think but for me it's more around the more holistic way of looking at learning yeah. looking at it from the learner perspective and looking at learning um as a process so process over time okay and i really like that that's something i put into my practice rather than just let me lecture this knowledge point a b and c to you um, but one of the things you talk about in the book when you, you really break this down a lot is you say that one of the problems with learning experience design is atomistic design. If I said that right, can you tell us a bit more? <laughs> yeah, so that happens a lot uh, in the workplace, I think. It, it basically means that we reduce complex problems um, by reducing like all the tasks that are involved to simpler or smaller components. So we look at a whole problem and then we divide that, for example, in learning objectives uh, or we divide like knowledge and skills. What you see a lot like in organizations is that we first teach the knowledge, you know, or, or we say like people need to be aware first and then we give them a bunch of information and then later they might start practicing something. So that is kind of like a misconception, right? That that's that that's a useful thing to do, because it, it's not necessarily a useful thing. Um, it's not necessarily when you when you teach some knowledge first that then you know after that you practice that and and you you know who who, who says you're still remembering anything mm. of that information that you 
that you went through before. So I don't know. To me, it's about skills and knowledge should go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. It should go back and forth. Uh, you should look at the task as a whole. So the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So don't. Atomistic design is where you where you break it down in separate learning objectives and then create activities to meet to achieve each learning objective, mm -hmm. which is just very ineffective. So what should we be doing instead? Because because that sounds logical that we would take a, a big process and break it down into small parts and teach those parts. So what's a better way of doing this? So the better way of doing it is when you start with the whole task and then uh, figure out what are more and less uh, levels of complexity for that task. Uh, for that task. Mm -hmm. So you would work from less complex to more complex and you would work from more scaffolding to less scaffolding. But every time um, you let people practice with an actual authentic task and give them the support that they need to complete that task successfully. Excellent. And you in the book, you do talk about scaffolding and I, I think the zone of proximal development, I think I saw in there as well and some really good robust theories too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so that's making a certain amount of sense. And people can obviously kind of go and either Google that or or obviously read the book and find out a little bit more. Um and and something else that I wanted to pick out out of the many things that are great in your book is uh, a quote from some research by uh, Salas and other people saying, successful training is not a one-time event, but an iterative process that considers the elements leading up to training as well as important factors after training. So if there's right. research to say that training isn't a one-off event, what should it be? And it is that kind of your evidence-informed approach uh, coming through as well? Right. And I, 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 I'm really happy with this question because I think that um, at this point, we define training in our field way in a way too narrow way. Just because we, you know, we have made a mistake by hammering out courses, you know, and maybe one day courses and then hope that it would transfer to the job and then that doesn't happen. But if you look at the training research, that's not what training is intended to be. Right. So it is like it's an iterative process mm. with uh, where you like carefully plan um, uh, systematic activities over time so that people can learn the knowledge and skills and attitudes like in an integrated uh, manner. So also what I think is really overlooked is that if you look at the training research, it focuses on learning and performance. So it even says like you need to differentiate between what people need to know and what people need to access. So that is a clear distinction between uh, training, like practicing and performance support. That is really, really important. And I think you're right. It We've is, become yeah. so reductionist in our industry for, for some good reasons. You know, people don't have time, don't have money uh, from a vendor perspective or the, you know, perceived time investment if you're an internal trainer in a team uh, and it's a case of go on this course, do something. You can understand where that's come from. Um, but it's our job to try and educate our stakeholders in order to be able to get the best that we need out of the people working in an organization, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think that that conversation around, um, I don't know, I'm, I might be stating the obvious, but 
at the same time, I don't think I am, <laughs> um, is, is that having those conversations with stakeholders and being able to explain why in certain uh, contexts you do need to train people as in, um, you know, practice activities over time uh, or practice tasks over time versus, okay, here you can just give them uh, a job aid or, um, you know, integrate something in a workflow or in a system that they can use to, to get the, to, to improve their performance, but maybe they don't need to learn anything necessarily. Mm. So that distinction, I think, or sometimes you need performance support to support learning, right? There are so many different types. Yeah. And and a lot of the book talks about uh, a lot of the myths we have in learning, such as learning styles, which seems to be ubiquitous, but also how to go through and actually analyse research and sort of say, well, is that research, is it evidence informed, is it evidence based, you know, where, how do we look at this? What are some of your tips that you can give to us, uh, maybe your top three tips on how can we look at something and decide is that stat, quote, real, or is it just made up from somewhere? Yeah, so that's so so when we just think about all the information that we're bombarded with like daily, right? So all the um the all the articles that discuss like cool sounding things or attractive things. Um so in the book we talk about the Willingham's steps and I I think those are really useful. So so the first tip is mm. strip it and flip it. So really think about, okay, what does this quote really mean or what is it what is this article really saying? Like what you know, really trying to take a step back. I think, what does it actually mean? So, for example, if 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 it says all millennials uh, are living online, I'm just making this up now. Then, what does this mean? Like, what does living online mean? Like, does it make any sense? Um, and then also flip it because sometimes the 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 statement would be something like. Um, Oh, yeah, for example, a very popular one, like uh, dopamine makes you uh, addicted to learning, for example. Well, can you flip that? And maybe dopamine can do negative things as well to learning, right? So think about, okay. is there another yeah. side to the story? And then one other tip for me is like really check references, like really check <gasps> where is this yeah. coming from? Like that to me is is really, really important. Yeah. I, I wrote a whole blog uh, where I'd read a stat somewhere that I know 65% of people are visual oh, learners. Oh yeah, I remember that. that. Yeah, that, that was great. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I just dug and dug and dug and followed all of these breadcrumbs to the place that had been quoted from. And it was, it was basically, it was the worst piece of quote research paper ever. It was just somebody's opinion on what they'd done in a class with about 10 people, which may well be really useful, but it was being cited as this number and then all over the internet. And I was absolutely red with rage about this. So, um, so yeah, it, it takes a little while to do that sometimes. And when you just want a stat to go into a report, it can be really tempting to go and copy that. But I, I definitely like the idea of just following where that evidence came from to check it out. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I, I just wonder if there's any research on people's, uh, that the, the fact that people feel attracted to those round numbers, right? Because to me, as soon as the round number, I'm suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely kind of the science-based part of it. I My degree is science-based. Uh, so I do like to see kind of 26.7. Right. But then, you know, the journalist part of me likes to go kind of 
Why don't we just round that up to 28? It's just so much easier. Yeah, and it, but then, you know, make a little footnote and say, this is rounded up, you know, for just yes. to, to attract yeah, you true. to my piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I like that. That's good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for this. Where can people buy the book and where can people find out more about you, Miriam? So people, so I have a Twitter handle, Miriam N, so M-I-R-J-A-M and then N. Um, I have a blog as well with Paul Kirchner. It's Three Star Learning Experiences. And the book you can get through Kogan Page and on Amazon. Thank you very much. And I must admit, I've read a load of your different blogs. I've referenced them in my articles and in my training, and I have found them really useful. You've taught me a good thing or two, Miriam, I can tell you that. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, so the book, just for the record, it's it, the, the official publication date is February, like 3 February, I think. So it's not, it's pre-order now. Okay. Well, people can keep an eye out for it. And if they're listening to this at some point in 2020, it's available. <laughs> oh, it is available. Sorry. <laughs> oh, it Miriam, is available. I've, had, <laughs> I've had such a fantastic conversation with you. The book is really, really good. There's loads of interesting stuff in there. And thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you so much for the invitation. Okay, well, that was the podcast for another month. Next month, we're talking about technology, just the tiny subject of technology, Joe. Yeah, it's not much to say about that, especially not with how the world is changing at the moment. <laughs> yeah, so obviously, there's going to be a lot of interesting uh, things to say about that and pieces going to be published in next month's magazine. But until then, uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> nice to- TJ Podcast is hosted by John Kennard, Joe Cook and Kate Graham. It's produced by me, John Kennard, and mixed and edited by Digital Skills People. Title music is by The Leisure All Stars featuring Yolanda. The sponsorship music is by Audio Nautics and is used under a Creative Commons license. TJ is a publishing title owned by Dodds Group PLC.